about five years ago, five, six years ago, I had um, one of the great honors of my life in ministry, and that was to preach my grandfather's funeral. And as I was preparing to write the funeral message, I began writing down memories with my grandfather. And it's a funny thing, because when I think back to my favorite memories with him, I realized that he and I had very few conversations in the years that we had together, nearly 30 30 years or so together. Um, And the reason we never talked much is because my grandfather had a lot of trouble hearing. And that made conversations difficult, right? I mean, it's hard to have conversations. And as a result, they were very rare. But the special thing about my grandfather, and we called him Bowie. Um, but the special thing about Bowie, though, is that his hearing and his inability to carry, have a conversation didn't prevent him from letting all of us grandkids know that we were loved and that he was proud of us. My grandfather had a way of smiling. He had a smile. It, was, it wasn't a smile. It's called a grin. You know what I mean? And there's a difference between a smile and a grin. He had a grin that just was so obvious when you saw it on his face, how proud he was of his grandchildren. And I would see this grin when he would come to my track meets in high school. He would not say a word, but he would stand at the finish line and he had a, he had a look on his face, a grin on his face that let everyone around him knew that it was his grandson that just won that race. And I knew he was proud of me, even though he never had to say it. I saw this grin one day. He took me fishing and I caught it wasn't that big of a fish, but it was, you know, it was a good size fish, like a medium size. Nothing. It wasn't anything you're going to hang on the wall or anything, but it was a fish nonetheless. And that afternoon he drove me all around. He, He lived in Sterrett, Alabama. He drove, me, he drove his little pickup truck and he drove me all around that little town and he would stop by each one of his friends' house and would show them the fish that his grandson caught. And he would just have this grin on his face. And I'm like, it's just a fish. It's like a bass. It's, okay. it's not a big deal. But the smile of his was always most evident when our whole family was together at a holiday, whether it's Christmas or Thanksgiving, and we would all be sitting in the living room. And you could tell just how happy and proud he was in those moments. All the grandkids, all the great grandkids. And in that room, there, when there's kids everywhere, there's a ton of noise. You guys know what this is like at holidays. There was so much noise, he would have to turn off his hearing aids, take them out of his ears, which would leave him virtually unable to hear anything that was going on around him. But he would sit in his chair, not having a clue what anyone was talking about around him. And he didn't care. Because he was present with his family, he would sit back in that recliner and he would simply, with a big grin on his face, would just sit there. And we would know in those moments that we were loved. Now, why do I tell those stories and why did I tell those at his funeral? Because I could have just said, hey, my grandfather was proud of me. But for you to really understand just how much I know my grandfather was proud of me, I have to show it, right? I can say my grandfather's proud of me, but that doesn't resonate. It resonates when we tell stories because we all know that stories communicate far better than propositions. See, if you really want to know what someone is like, listen to the stories that are told about them. And this is true of God as well. We all, what is God like? What we want to know what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, read the stories about God found in the scriptures. The Bible does give propositions about God's character. The Lord is mighty. The Lord is gracious. God is love. 
But how do we know these things? How do we know that he's these things? We know these things because we see his character displayed in the stories that the Bible tells us. And today we're looking at the story of the plagues in Egypt. And that's a well-known story, often misunderstood story, but a well-known story. And at its very core, it's a story that teaches us and tells us about the character of God and who God is. I could tell you that God is gracious and I could tell you that God is just. And you go, okay, great. But the story of the plagues shows us how gracious he is and shows us how just he is. Remember last week we ended, or Pharaoh asked the question last week. He said, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? When Moses said, hey, you got to let God's people go so they can go worship him in the, in the wilderness. And Pharaoh asked a question. There were two questions within it. He said, who is the Lord and why should I obey him? Now, that's the question we should all be asking, isn't it? Who is God and why should we obey him? Well, the story of the plagues gives us an answer to both of those questions. And we learn about who God is and why we should obey him. And the plagues are found in Exodus chapters 7 through 11. And these chapters cover 10 separate plagues that God brings on Egypt because Egypt was enslaving the people of Israel. And the pattern goes basically like this. It changes with each plague, but here's the general pattern with each plague. God tells Pharaoh through Moses, Pharaoh, let my people go. Let them out of slavery. Let the people of Israel, the Israelites go, release them from bondage, release them from slavery so that they may worship me in freedom. And if you don't, here's what I'm going to do to Egypt, to your kingdom. And each time Pharaoh basically says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. So God makes good on the promise that he made to Pharaoh. He sends a plague and the plagues go in this order. First was the Nile. He turned the Nile River to blood, which cut off their water supply. It made it killed all the fish and it made their it stunk. All of Egypt smelled terrible, smelled like death. Then God sent frogs. Lots of the scripture says the frogs were everywhere. They were in people's ovens and in their bowls. Like, do you guys know how much anxiety is in my house if there's one mouse in our whole building? Can you imagine if there's frogs in your oven and in your bowls and in your coffee mugs and everything? It, that's awful. There's frogs. The third plague was gnats. Um, if you like to run, you know, what I, one of the worst things in the world as a runner is when you're running and you run through like a big thing of gnats and you just inhale them. It's awful. It's the worst thing. Then fourth plague was flies, flies everywhere. Then the fifth plague was death of livestock. So a destruction to their economy, um, to their food supply. Then sixth was boils. So like a skin disease. Then there was a hailstorm. Then there were locusts that ate away all the plants and cut off their plant supply. And then it ends with two plagues of darkness, complete and utter darkness all over Egypt. And then the death of the firstborn, which ironically, the death of the firstborn is the very thing that Pharaoh that began this whole story by Pharaoh killing the firstborn of Israelites. And by the time they get to the end of these plagues, Pharaoh has he has this group of people, advisors around him. He's got magicians, advisors, servants, and they are all begging him to let the people of Israel go. You read through the story of the plagues and they're like, like Pharaoh 
you need, you've got too much pride. You need to back off. And this is, they all see that the Lord is God. And they all see that he should be obeyed. And they're like, Pharaoh, you've got to back off or else this is going to keep getting worse. And Pharaoh continues to refuse. When God calls him to obedience, Pharaoh continues to refuse. And God gives Pharaoh 10 opportunities to save himself and his people. And God gives Pharaoh 10 opportunities to obey his commands. And he refuses. And each time the scripture says Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder and harder and harder to, the, to, the, the, to, to what God is calling him to do. To the commands of God. And Pharaoh had asked, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And God is answering him over and over and over again. And in the most clear in your face ways. But Pharaoh's heart was too hard to see that God was answering his questions. So Pharaoh continues to refuse, continues to disobey God, continues to oppress God's people, innocent people in slavery and in torture. And instead of um, this morning, instead of me trying to go detail by detail of every single plague, we would be here for hours and hours. I want us to zero in on one specific plague. And that's the plague of the hailstorm. And the reason I choose this one is because it gives us a lot of detail, more so than most of the other plagues. And I also think there's, there's some, uh, some uh, parts of this plague and in the telling of this plague that display God's character in some fascinating ways. And this is the seventh plague, the plague of the hailstorm. And it begins in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. It begins, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him. So this is God's words to Pharaoh through Moses. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the, one who, the ones whom you are persecuting and oppressing and enslaving. I say to you, Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What's the purpose of the plagues? The purpose of the plagues is for God to reveal that he is God. God could have easily just wiped out Egypt and freed the Israelites. But there was a greater purpose. God was showing his glory and the power of his name during all of this. And he, he was giving an opportunity for the Egyptians to realize that he was God as well. And he says, but yet you are still exalting yourself against my people and, and you will not let them go. Now listen to this. Now behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on him, on them. When whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now, I'll skip a few verses, but tell you that what happens is um, the next several verses showing that God makes good on his promise. And 
About that time, the next day, God sent a heavy hailstorm, and those who did not seek shelter were killed along with the animals and the plants. But those who obeyed the Lord were safe, even the Egyptians. And then verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent and called to Moses and Aaron and said to them, Oh, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And you're like, his heart has been softened, and Pharaoh is going to let the people go. And Moses is like, yeah, no, I doubt that's what's going to happen. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord and the thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. I know that this repentance, this, 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 oh, woe is me. I have sinned. I know that there's, there's that I know that you don't yet fear God. Verse 33, though, says that Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now, what does that story tell us about God? The first thing it tells us that the God, that the Lord is gracious and merciful. This morning during our call to worship, we read Psalm 145, which says the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the Exodus story. And in God's patience with Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. If you sit down and read the Exodus story, my wife and I, we're doing our Bible reading plan together right now. And we've just finished Exodus. And then when you read it, like in one sitting, you're like, like it gets frustrating because like the hailstorm, this is the seventh plague. Like what we just read, that's the seventh plague. There's been six before there's going to be three more. And you're like, at some point you're like, God, why is God taking so long? Like, how many chances are you going to give the bad guys? Like, how many chances are you going to give these guys? And you know the Israelites felt this way because every day that God was sending the plagues, that was another day that they were in slavery, another day that they were in bondage, another day that they were whipped and beaten and forced into labor. And you know that they're thinking, man, God, why are you allowing Pharaoh to reign as a tyrant for so long? And you know they're thinking like, how long are you going to do this? Frogs and gnats and locusts? Come on, just destroy them so we can be free. They're evil. And the story of the plagues, though, not only shows God's might and power, but it shows God's grace and mercy and his patience, even to those who are evil. And many people read the Exodus story and they think of how brutal and harsh the plagues are. And they're like, well, God, why would God send those plagues? That's harsh. That doesn't sound like God. And they're like, well, it seems like God's angry and he's going to war. But in these plagues, you actually see God's mercy over all of them. I mean, the very fact that God even said this to Moses, he's like, the very fact that I'm sending plagues is merciful because I could just destroy you, Pharaoh, and bring these people to freedom. But that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying not only to demonstrate my glory and free the oppressed, but I'm trying to deliver you as well. 
I'm trying to show you that there is life and that there is abundant life when you are obedient to the way of the Lord. And Pharaoh continues to just refuse and hardens his heart. But one example of mercy in this passage is I love that God warns the Egyptians about the plague that's coming. Did you guys catch that? He didn't blindside them with a plague. He was like, hey, look, about this time tomorrow. Like, I'm going to tell you exactly what time it's going to happen. You got 24 hours to prepare. About this time tomorrow, I'm going to send a hailstorm. So you might want to go start loading up your livestock. You might want to get your family and you might want to get inside. If you're inside, you'll be fine. But there's coming a hailstorm. Anybody who's outside, it's, these, are, it's, it, these are big. This is, is going to be devastating. He literally tells them when it's going to happen, this time tomorrow, and he tells them how to find safety. Get your family and your animals inside. He gives them 24 hours to prepare, tells them how to prepare. And in the end, our scripture today says that the Egyptians that obeyed God's instructions were spared, along with their animals, but those who refused to listen to God's voice were destroyed. And we also see in this story that God is gracious even with Pharaoh. God said to Pharaoh, he's like, look, I could have killed you by now and everyone in your kingdom, but I've continued to give you a chance to repent, to confess that I am God, I am God and to turn from your evil ways and to do what is right. I mean, this is God pleading with Pharaoh saying, do not do this. Do not disobey me. Do not go against my people and my word. And God is gracious with Pharaoh, even this is, I don't know if you notice this. God is gracious with Pharaoh, even when Pharaoh is abusing him. God's gracious with Pharaoh, even when Pharaoh thinks he's playing God. That hell, the hailstorm comes and Pharaoh says, ah, oh, oh God, I've sinned. The Lord is in the right and I, my people are in the wrong. I'm pleading with you, God. I will let your people go if the, the hail ends abruptly. And now, I don't know if you've had this moment. I assume most of you have. But you've had a moment in your life where something takes a turn for the worse. Find yourself in the back of a police car, maybe. Sick on the bathroom floor. Maybe your heart is broken. You have an exam you didn't study for. Your team is down at the half. I don't know what it is. But I know you've probably prayed this prayer at some point in your life. God, if you just come through for me right now... I will serve you for the rest of my life. But then as soon as your life goes back to normal, as soon as, you know, the, you know, you get bailed out, as soon as the hangover goes away, or as soon as, you know, you find another relationship or whatever, you're like, you've forgotten about God and you've moved on. This is exactly what Pharaoh has done. Pharaoh, do, and, and this isn't the first time Pharaoh has done that. That's why Moses was so cynical. This is the third time Pharaoh has done this very same song and dance, and he's going to do it again with the locusts. And he's like, God, I'm so sorry. You're right. I'll let your people go. And every single time God relents every single time. And as a reader, you're like, God, stop falling for that. Like, why do you keep even Moses like uh, calls Pharaoh in this passage? Pharaoh's crying. Oh, I'm a sinner. And Moses is like, I don't believe you. I don't believe this. No, he's like, you don't fear the Lord. And you know, Moses is like, God, he's, he's messing with you. And God's like, yeah, I know. God was never fooled by Pharaoh's false repentance, but he was gracious anyway. He continued to be gracious over and over and over. God continues to show his mercy. Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and slow 
slow to anger. His mercy is over all that he has made, even to Pharaoh and even to Egypt. God knew that Pharaoh would continue to resist, but God still gave him many chances to repent. And when you hear that, that ought to frustrate you a little bit. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you hear that God was gracious, even to an evil tyrant dictator, that ought to frustrate you a little bit. That God would be gracious even to our enemies. That he might be patient with those who do evil. That he would be willing to forgive and show mercy even to those who harm us. God is slow to anger even with those who make us most angry. Did you catch that? If God's grace doesn't frustrate you, then I might suggest that you haven't fully understood God's grace. Because the New Testament calls God's grace scandalous. And it's scandalous because God is always far more patient and far more gracious and merciful to failures and evildoers than we ever could be and we ever are. God's grace can be frustrating because God is always more gracious and merciful than you and I are. See, we've got limits to our mercy and grace, don't we? There are people who don't deserve our forgiveness. There are people that don't deserve our compassion. There are people that don't deserve our time. Never with God. He is merciful to all, even to Pharaoh's, desiring that all should repent. God's grace can be frustrating to us. And many people will even reject God because they think he's too merciful. They did it with Jesus. They said, look, at this, this guy's eating with tax collectors and sinners and drunkards. I remember a couple years ago, I went out, one of my neighbors was moving away. And I went out and had dinner with him before he moved. And it was while we were sitting in over dinner that I found out he had spent 19 years in prison. And I was like, man, the whole purpose, like one of the reasons why we we had been hanging, we had been friends for all these years. And I finally took him out to dinner and I was going to share with him my faith. And he told me about prison or whatever. And I shared with him about the gospel of Jesus. And I was like, Jesus can forgive all your worst mistakes. And he was like, you know what? I've heard that before. He said, the chaplain in the prison that I was in used to tell us that all the time. He's like, but he would even say that to the child molesters. And he was like, any God that will forgive a child molester, I don't want a part of. God's grace angered my friend. And because of his anger toward God's grace, he rejected God's grace for himself. God's grace ought to frustrate us. But on the other hand, God's grace should comfort us. You know why? Because if God's mercy is extended to Pharaoh, that means it's extended to you and me as well. Because if God is patient with Pharaoh, that means he'll be patient with you. And that's good news. And listen, the people of Israel would learn of God's mercy and grace and patience very soon. Because right now you read the story and you're like, the Israel, they're the innocent ones. They're the ones that can't do, they can do no wrong. They're the ones in slavery. They're God's people. But very soon, God is going to deliver them from slavery. And in the wilderness, they're going to begin to disobey God. And you know what God is going to say to them? Do not harden your hearts. And when God says that to them, what do you think they're going to think of? They're going to think of Pharaoh. They're going to think, oh, Pharaoh hardened his heart and now he's speaking to us. I mean, Israel's going to deal with this for the next. You read the whole Old Testament. You're like, God, constantly God's like, you guys stop disobeying me. So don't harden your hearts. 
And those very those words do not harden your hearts. Not only will remind them of Pharaoh, but it will remind them that God is gracious and slow to anger even with them, just as he was with Pharaoh. And this goes for you and for me. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. That's good news. And that means that this morning God is not giving up on you. That means that he is calling you back and he will welcome you home when you turn to him. That is God's grace. God is gracious and merciful. We learn that from this story, but we also learn that God is just in his anger. Psalm 145 says God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, but he does get angry. And a lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people struggle with the wrath and the anger of God, but God gets angry because he is loving. I get angry at cancer because I love my friends whom cancer has attacked. I get angry at bullying when my child comes home from school with tears in their eyes. When you love something, you get angry at the things that threaten them. And God loves the people of Israel. God even loves the people of Egypt. And God loves justice. And all of those things are threatened by Pharaoh's disobedience. And, Pharaoh, and God is slow to anger, but eventually the anger comes out. Because God loves, he gets angry. And when God looks out over Egypt and he sees the oppression and the disobedience and the utter lack of concern for human dignity and the apathy that Pharaoh shows for God's own glory and name, it makes God angry. And because he loves the people of Israel and because he loves his name and his glory and because he loves justice, he refuses to let this go on forever. You see, here's what you need to know. God's love is comforting. Somebody give me an amen on that. We can all agree on that. But God's love is also confrontational. God will confront you if there is something in your life that is harming others or yourself. And God will call you to stop, to repent, and to walk in obedience to him. And see, God's love not only comforts us, but it confronts us. And God confronts Pharaoh ten times. And each time, Pharaoh, it says, his heart grows harder and harder to the purposes of God. And listen, there's going to come a time in a few short chapters, we're going to see this in the next two weeks, where God finally gives Pharaoh over to his evil. All right, Pharaoh, if you're not going to obey me, have at it. Do what you want. And when he does, Pharaoh will be destroyed, along with all those who enabled him and all those who were complicit in his evil. In the mid-1850s, American slave conditions were at their very worst. And during that time, a song was written and published. And the songwriters, we don't know who they are, but the song was called Go Down Moses. And this song somehow managed to spread all over the United States, and it became an anthem for American slaves. Harriet Tubman's biographer said that this was one of the songs that she sang and she taught other slaves as she led the Underground Railroad. And it gave her and all her, uh, the people with her, it gave them hope amidst the oppression and the slavery that they suffered. And the song goes like this. The Lord by Moses to Pharaoh said, oh, let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Oh, let my people go. 
Oh, go down Moses, away down to Egypt's land, and tell King Pharaoh to let my people go. See, we get really upset when we hear about the firstborn and we hear about God, you know, closing the Red Sea on the Egyptians and all that. We get really we get we get uncomfortable with that. But maybe that's because we're we're reading this story through the lens of privilege. If you've ever been, I mean, to an oppressed group of people, when they hear that their God will destroy the people enslaving them, that causes them to worship. Not to write blogs about how, you know, God is not the way I want him to be. Do you understand? When you're oppressed, God's judgment is like a bomb for the soul. When you're privileged, God's judgment, you're like, why is he being so mean? But to the oppressed person, that is very, that's reason for them to fall on their face and worship. And Go Down Moses was a song about God's judgment and his anger toward evil. And it gave hope to American slaves during the worst conditions because they knew that their God was a deliverer and that he will not and would not let evil flourish forever. And our modern American sensibilities wince at the thought of God's anger. But to someone who's under the boot of an oppressive force, the promise of God's judgment is good news. And God's love and mercy and grace are not incongruent with his wrath and mercy. They're a result of it. Do you see that? When you love something, you get angry when that thing is threatened. And God loved the Israelites. God loved the American slaves. And God loves justice. And when those things are threatened and when they were threatened, when, God, when people whom God loves are threatened, God confronts. And he did for the Israelites. And my question for you, if we just want to turn this and put this on our lives right now, you're like, 2019 America, there might be some prejudice and you know, intolerance or racism here and there, or there might be bullying or whatever, but like true oppression, none of us really feel it in the way that the Israelites did. But what is oppressing you? Something's oppressing you. And for many of us, it's our own sin. And it's our own destructive patterns. And it's our own destructive habits. It's our own disobedience to God that is oppressing to us. See, in many ways, we're our own pharaohs, aren't we? Holding ourselves in bondage to the slavery of our own bitterness, our own unforgiveness. We hold ourselves in bondage to our addictions, to our destructive habits, to our pride, to our self-righteousness. And yet God is so patient with us, isn't he? I mean, how many times has God continued and continued to give you an opportunity to come clean and to repent and to walk into obedience? The fact that he hasn't destroyed all of us is a, is a testimony to his grace. But like Pharaoh, we must be careful. We must be careful not to continue to harden our hearts. Because we can ignore God's pleading until we have finally seared our hearts from hearing the gracious invitation of God to obey him. There's a warning in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that says, do not quench the spirit. And we hear that and we're like, what is that? There's all this debate about quenching the spirit. And you're like, how do I quench the spirit? And quenching the spirit, listen to me, does not come through one defiant act. You don't decide, I'm going to quench the Spirit of God today. Get away from me, Spirit. The way we quench the Spirit, it comes like Pharaoh. 
When time and time and time again, God offers his forgiveness, he exposes our sin, he reveals our, un, our, our, our lack of holiness to us and gives us an opportunity to repent and be obedient to him. And yet, like Pharaoh, we put it off and we say, I'll do that next week. Or this is just a really stressful time of life right now. I kind of need this right here, right now. I'll deal with that later. I'll do that when I get married. I'll deal with that when I have kids. I'll deal with that when the kids are out of the house. I'll deal with that when I'm retired. And we put off and we put off and we put off God's call to us to be obedient. And eventually we lose the ability to even hear God's voice at all. And when that happens, he gives us over to our own destruction. He says, okay, okay, do what you want. And Christians, Christian tradition has a word for this. It's called hell. But there is hope. You remember how God told all the Egyptians that they could be safe from the hailstorm? He said, look, you got 24 hours, get inside. Likewise, and hear me this morning. God has revealed to us through Jesus Christ how we can be safe from our own destruction and from his own anger. There is a way that God can destroy our sin yet leave us whole. There is a way that God can destroy the sin patterns and the destructive habits in your life and yet leave you whole. It is through Jesus taking our sin onto himself, pouring out his own wrath toward our disobedience onto himself at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says it was For God made him his son who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the scriptures say that if we take cover, the Apostle Paul says, if we will be in Christ, if we take shelter in Christ, we will not suffer under the wrath of God, but we will be saved by his grace. Who and why, or who is God and why should we obey him? That's the question Pharaoh asked. The answer was right in front of Pharaoh's face, but his heart was too hard to recognize it. But in this story, we have an opportunity to see who God is. God is gracious and he is merciful and he is slow to anger, even with the most evil people, even you, even me. We also see that he's just in his anger. And that he's slow to anger, but he will get angry when he sees sin destroying you. And why should we obey him? Because there's rest and there's safety and there's blessing and there's freedom in obedience to him. Jesus called it abundant life. Jesus called it the narrow way. But he said there's a wide road that many people are on that leads to destruction. But there's a narrow road that few find it. But those who do, they enter into the kingdom of Christ, abundant life.